Well, thank you. Thanks for coming, everyone, and staying on uh, after the nice lunch break. Um, we already, in the first half of the seminar, we sort of started to open the hornet's nests of difficult discourses and concepts and what people mean when they say things. Um, and maybe I can add some more hornets to that. Um, I am going to present you findings from a study I did with Marilyn Freeman, who um, is emeritus now at London Metropolitan University and worked in, in the law department there. And it is to her credit that the issue of forced marriage was integrated into our study of university responses to violence against women. I want to tell you some of, the, of our findings and some of the issues I see in there. And I should also say that um, I'm based in the United States, in Maine, it's the northeastern state, um, just uh, south of Canada. And my uh, major engagement with this topic of university responses to violence against women has been from the perspective sort of of a practitioner, because I was involved, I started and directed a violence prevention camp project on campus for 10 years. And so my personal prior interest is in the issues of working with universities, with institutions, in particular with institutional leadership on um, creating campuses that are free of violence, that are uh, less discriminatory. And um, I hope we can talk more about this and inevitably I'll draw on my experiences in the United States. <clears throat> we'll see how much of that is relevant in this context here. Um, University responses to forced marriage and violence against women. I'm not going to say much about forced marriage because we heard uh, so much interesting detail about it already. Marilyn and I were um, understanding uh, forced marriage for the purpose of this research as a form of violence against women and a human rights violation uh, in an effort to emphasize that we are not trying to stigmatize communities or issues of forced marriage or culturalizing them. Um, it is already a difficult um, intellectual and conceptual effort to really address these matters in, 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 in academic discourses and it's also difficult to do that in everyday conversation. But we tried to make clear to our interviewers um, that we were taking, we're trying to take a broader view and we tried to to get our interviewers to think about violence against women, forced marriage in as broad as possible a way and not leaping to conclusions about how to compartmentalize these issues. Um, also be talking, uh, our research is, um, the evidence we're using for our research is feedback from professionals, mostly university staff members and mostly student services staff members. We did not interview women or men about experiences of violence against women or forced marriage. We did not interview victim survivors. We did not interview perpetrators. We were interviewing. We interviewed those people at mostly at universities who might come in contact with victim survivors, and we wanted to know whether university staff were aware of these issues, what they were thinking about them, whether they had seen cases related. Um, to these issues, whether they felt equipped to deal with them, whether they felt supported by their own institution in those kinds of 
issues. Um, just some examples of cases that came up in the interviews we held and um, I should emphasize that this was all um, anonymous information and it was confidential. It was about that that level of specificity so no names were ever disclosed and no identifying personal information. But some of the examples that our interviewees had seen in their daily life um, delivering student services in the university context <coughs> included one case where the student was exploited by relatives on whose financial support she depended. Another was a case of a student who was in, was physically abused by the father of her child through sort of labeled a domestic violence incident, but with um, uh, issues of, of child care um, mixed in. Another case I referred to was one of a student where the parents or family supported the student's studies on condition that she get married to a man of the family's choice when she com the studies were completed. Another case was of a student who had experienced abuse in childhood and then subsequently in multiple abusive relationships as an adult, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, and another case of a student who was physically abused in the context of a forced marriage. And I'm just um, listing these here just to broaden maybe a little bit the our ideas and notions of what forced or uh, what violence against women and students sort of looks like. Um, it can take all sorts of different forms and many of the cases that actually come to the attention of university staff are very complicated cases with multiple vulnerabilities and, and multiple problems and oftentimes long histories of problems or abuse. So why should universities bother about this? Um, why they could also say, um, while we're aware of these issues, they're an issue for the, for the society to uh, turn around and come to grips with it, or maybe this is uh, something for the domestic violence projects and rape crisis centers and, and, and specialist organizations to um, take care of. But um, uh, I think that there are at least four um, arguments to be made why universities should address violence against women and forced marriage. And one has to do with the sheer extent of the problem, um, with the fact that the disproportionate impact is on female students. That does not mean that no male students will be affected. Some men are affected too, but disproportionately it's female students, which um, possibly uh, creates discriminatory structures in which female students are studying at university. And uh, universities in the UK for the past couple of years have a legal duty, now the public sector equality duty, to end discrimination, including discrimination on grounds of sex and gender. And last but not least, um, that sort of discriminatory structural issues would affect access and participation, also sort of something that is an important policy goal. So what is the extent of the problem? Uh, over the past few years there have been um, a few prevalence surveys uh, looking specifically at experience of um, sexual and physical abuse and sexual harassment 
um, of female students while at university. So the larger topic of prevalence surveys or the larger issue of prevalence surveys um, in the community has a long research history, in particular in the Anglo-Saxon countries, going back to the mid-1970s. So there has been wave after wave of prevalence surveys in different countries. Um, now, nowadays, worldwide, um, there's a lot, a lot of research about this, but more recently have been studies focusing specifically on female students and um, their experiences while studying at university. So this, um, this data there that you've seen there is from a survey, um, national survey in the UK done by the National Union of Students and it was published in 2010 and they found that uh, when they asked female students to indicate whether they had ever experienced various kinds of violations. They found that 12% said they had been stalked, 13% had said, reported having experience of serious physical or sexual assault, and 68% um, said they had been sexually harassed while at university, and kept calls, whistling, unwanted touching, all sorts of different um, things. Another um, findings from another study. This is also a UK study of four universities, um, which was done in the context of a larger multi-country European study, uh, found sort of similar rates of experiences of sexual harassment in higher rates um, of stalking and what the uh, researchers summarized as sexual violation. Um, the um, The advantage of prevalence surveys, um, or maybe I should say the disadvantage of prevalence surveys, let's start that way. If the questions are not asked well, um, it, you're unlikely to find um, interesting or reliable information. But um, if questions are asked very carefully, in particular about um, detailed experiences of has anybody ever done this and this and this to you against your will and so forth, then prevalence surveys can give a fairly good best estimate of the extent of social problems, and in this case, of the extent of violence against women. The, um, the methodology of doing these surveys has improved considerably over the past 40 years. Um, and so it is, in my opinion, this well-done well prevalence survey is the best way we have to get an, uh, a relatively good estimate of the true extent of violence against women. Um, another source of information are agency statistics, like this one that um, you already presented. This is um, information about the caseloads that Before Marriage uh, has published uh, on its website. Um, and cases there, as far as I know, are defined as cases or instances where the forced marriage unit did some kind of consulting or help or intervention. And so there's no, um, this doesn't necessarily mean this was a sort of completed forced marriage. It could have been in all sorts of stages. Um, agency statistics, I think, are very useful too. Um, the limitation of agency statistics is that you own that agencies know only about cases that come to them. 
and I don't know about cases that do not come to them. So I, therefore I think it is useful to try to triangulate information from agency statistics and prevalent surveys if prevalent surveys are available. Um, other issue why universities ought to be concerned about forced marriage and violence against women um, is because of the impact these violations can have on victim survivors, including health impacts, social impacts, and academic. Um, and obviously the health and social impacts could have sort of indirect or direct additional effects on the academic um, consequences. Um, in the, the the field of research on violence against women is extremely well documented that violence against women can have significant health and mental health consequences. So I'm not going to go too much into this, but I want to emphasize that from the perspective of higher education and what the, high, the higher education sector positions itself towards violence against women and related abuses, the, the impact on academic achievement is really important. And I, in emphasizing this, I don't want to say that the other impacts are less important, but in order to make an argument to universities, I think the academic impacts need to be emphasized because they um, speak directly to <coughs> academic discourses about you know, bril academic brilliance and academic success and bringing the best out of our students and having helping them to learn and to excel and to achieve. And all of these, these discourses that you find on university websites all over the place, they presume that learning can happen undeterred and unimpeded. But in truth is that experiences of violence against women and forced marriage do interfere with academic success. Um, performance goes down, students may avoid courses because they don't want to meet, run into the perpetrator uh, or they uh, can concentrate and have dif difficulty remembering things. So a lot of impacts on academic work, academic performance. Um, having experienced a rape, for instance, may lead a student to simply leave the university, maybe disrupt her studies for a long period of time or end them altogether. So there's loads of, of academic impacts that an academic stu uh, institution that is serious about promoting academic success should take serious. So we know, um, and this is by the way, this, this data is taken from the multi-country European study, there were five countries involved in it, UK, Germany, Italy, Spain, and Poland. Um, and it's also interviewing women at universities about their experiences of abuse and violence and um, the impact these experiences had on their lives. So we know that um, violence against female students is fairly common, in particular when you look at sexual um, harassment. We know that on, for some students can have significant impacts, in particular from the academic point of view on their academic performance. And so the next question is, do universities know about this? This is also from the, from, um, the uh, British 
study that looked at four different British universities. Um, and there, uh, in, in this particular research, it found the, the researchers found for once that considerable number of women who, was, who took part in this research said that they hadn't told anybody about what, whatever it was that happened to them, whether it was a rape or whether they were in a physically abusive relationship or whatever it has, had been sexually harassed and so forth. So quite a large number um, had said that they didn't tell anybody. This, by the way, is not all that unusual in these kinds of prevalent surveys. There are often, there's often a small percentage of respondents who will say to the interviewers, um, I've never spoken with anybody about what happened to me. This is the first time that I tell you, the interviewer, because it's anonymous or confidential or whatever the circumstances are right. Um, leaving that aside, about 55% of respondents told uh, their friends or family members sort of um, disclosed the victimization within their informal social networks. And only 7% told authorities like police or the student services, um, head of student services or dean of student services. And this distinction here, this difference between formal reporting to authorities and informal disclosure in the social networks is, um, has been observed in many, many different victimization surveys. So on the one hand, um, that means that this this phrase that that went uh, that was in the in the discourses in the in the 80s or so of uh, um, violence against women being a crime behind closed doors um, is really misleading. Sort of this this idea that nobody really knows about this because the rapes and the beatings and so forth they happen in private. This is not really accurate. Of course, there are some cases where nobody besides the um, perpetrator victim know about it, but for the most part, many people in the social networks of victim and perpetrators know, either because they, the victim told them, because the perpetrator told, um, because friends and family were witnessing the assault. Children oftentimes witness assaults on their mothers. Um, students may witness um, attempts to prepare a sexual assault against another student. Um, neighbors might overhear, um, so um, third parties can know because they were confidants or they were witnesses or maybe they because they participated in the assault. In contrast, authorities like police or uh, university leadership know very little about the number of cases based on um, official reports to authorities. So there's a huge difference between what sort of informally we, as a society, know what goes on in our midst in this sort of um, evidence of formal reporting. And the reasons for low formal reporting are various and depends on the circumstances and depends on the, the issue and the well, the cultural and political context in which reporting would take place. Um, what um, respondents have said about in, in other in, in prevalent surveys and victimization surveys uh, why they didn't tell 
the police or, or any other authorities, oftentimes because the violation is not seen as a crime or not serious enough to tell or it's considered normal, it happens to everybody all the time. It's particularly an issue with um, sexual harassment, which seems to be rampant against female students, so it becomes really normalized, a normalized part of everyday experience. Or victims are afraid that authorities will not believe them, that in general the reaction of um, authorities to a report will be unhelpful for various reasons, either because victims feel not believed, uh, afraid to be blamed um, for what happened to them, or ridiculed or dismissed. Um, they also be afraid that authorities will take inappropriate action, sort of suddenly steamroll over victims with all sorts of interventions that a victim might not want. Um, in many cases of domestic violence, this has to do with whether or not to arrest the perpetrator, which police might want to do, or not, not necessarily the victim depending on how, what the consequences would be for a victim or victim's family or if the perpetrator went to jail. Um, other victims don't tell authorities because they don't, or don't disclose issues because they don't want to upset other people. Um, and I think in um, particular, perhaps uh, with regard to forced marriage, um, young people may be unwilling to bring charges against family members. Um, sort of air dirty laundry in public and those kinds of issues or don't want to be seen as, as a traitor or somebody who um, spills information about the family in public and to the, to the authorities or take any steps that could be interpreted as sort of moving towards um, having family members arrested or so forth. So. There's a variety of reasons why reporting to authorities is very low. Um, that doesn't mean it's impossible to see the issues in academia. And I think there are certain red flags that are somewhat typical for academic environments. Um, the forced marriage unit also publishes some guidance about this and emphasizes similar issues. And some of the red flags have to do with failing academically, like failing a paper or exam, some changes in habits, not attending classes anymore, or attending classes too much, if, or not too much, but being, spending sort of a lot of time at university, either in the library or in the classroom or in the laboratory, because it may be seen as a safe space by a student. Unexplained absences from classes, requesting leave from classes to go home for an arranged marriage, or just sort of vague allusions to family or relationship problems. Some of our interviews pointed out that many students will try to deal with any of these kind of issues that they might have on their own, and some are able to resolve them on their own, or somehow to deal with them on their own without asking for help from the university. But those who come to the attention of university staff are oftentimes those where the situation has reached a crisis point. So these red flags are not just red flags about issues, but red flags about really serious problems near crisis point. So how do universities respond? Um, uh, on the whole, there's not a great lot of research about this. We, um, Marilyn Freeman and I, um, 
undertook some research. Um, on the, overall, we had semi-structured interviews with 24 staff members at nine different post-secondary education institutions. They were all universities. Um, we also inter spoke with um, staff working at NGOs, specialist violence against women NGOs, um, NGOs um, working on forced marriage and related issues, and we spoke with some police officers on cases involving students. Um, and we also did keyword searches on websites to see whether issues of violence against women or gender-based violence appeared on the public pages of universities university websites and if they appeared there was mentioning of these issues in what context and uh, just sort of on a, a side I don't uh, want to go into this too much but the large and large research universities in particular you can find loads and loads and loads of information on violence against women gender-based violence and it's all research related and some of it is sort of awareness raising related you find hardly anything about policy or sort of corporate intent to prevent issues and change culture. So there's a there's a sort of dichotomy or split of a discourse where these sensitive topics are embraced in terms of research and awareness in general out there for society, but much less so in terms of you know, the institutions looking at themselves and posting information on what they are doing to address these issues. Our key findings, just briefly, and then I want to sort of talk more about these, these last issues. University response, what we found is it's basically up to individual staff members. And we spoke to staff members who seem to be extremely motivated to help students and support them and write by students and would go out of their way to help them. Many of them were highly motivated and well-meaning. Some were also well-informed, including having specialist knowledge about violence against women and some about forced marriage. Many were not so well-informed and were not really that so clear about various aspects of violence against women or what forced marriage is and how it is different or not from arranged marriage. But mostly this was the university response was really sort of up to the initiative and commitment of individual staff members. And I have to emphasize that many of those we spoke to seemed to be really genuine in their efforts to try to support their students. In contrast, there seems to be hardly any systematic institutional response of the kind that would involve like a institutional strategy, systematic policy about how to address violence against women, forced marriage, or associated staff training and those kinds of issues. And the third point there um, that we found had to do with problematic assumptions, both coming out of interviews with staff members and also a little bit coming out of this, this analysis of websites and what was posted and not posted on websites. And I'm going to emphasize problematic assumptions about disclosure and problematic assumptions about interventions, in particular the value of generic interventions. Um, one problematic assumption about disclosure is that no disclosure means there's no problem. 
I think this is a really comfortable position to inhabit if you can bring yourself to do so, because as an authority, you're likely to not ever hear anything about those kind of sensitive issues. And so you could say, well, I'm here for you to talk to me about this, but you don't, you're not doing this, you're not coming forward, so I assume there's no problem. This is almost always wrong. Um, because of the disclosure dynamics I mentioned earlier and the reluctance of most people to disclose sensitive information to some authority, some designated person that they ought to be disclosing to. That's just not the way it works in human relationships. Um, another problematic assumption was that the student would say things in a way the staff mem member expects. And there was one... Um, one person uh, working at a university who put it very succinctly and said, I've never had a student say to me, I'm being forced into marriage. And I think what is problematic about this un is it seems to me there's an underlying assumption by this person that if a student was uh, affected by forced marriage, the person would sort of come straight out and put it in these terms and tell the counselor or whoever it was, this is what's going on in my life. And this too, considering disclosure dynamics, issues of trust, considering how sensitive this information is, considering all the issues that we heard about earlier, about the complex um, political and historical issues of different com minoritized communities in majority contexts, it's extremely unlikely that a student would put things in this clear way. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's just extremely unlikely. So it's not what is problematic about this assumption is this thinking it'll it'll be like this and then I know there is a problem with rape or sexual assault or forced marriage. Instead it's a matter of trying to listen for signals or coded language. Um, another problematic assumption was that um, Surely if, um, the distinction between arranged and forced marriage is clear and surely it is not always clear and we already heard about that and I'm just going to add two examples to this. Um, one uh, Maryland produced uh, from a case in 2013 that went to the Irish High Court where apparently a girl um, underage girl had approached her teacher in school with concerns about being married against her wishes without realizing that a marriage ceremony had already taken place. So the, the dynamics might be such that it's not entirely clear to the young person where they are in, in the whole issue of arranged forced marriage. And one other example, this comes from a colleague of mine uh, who works um, in Denmark and um, um, told me about research um, in, in the Danish context and the, um, the difficulties that the Danish authorities have in sort of making distinctions between arranged and forced marriage and some research that has been done around this in Denmark. Um, in interviews with young people who were being, um, who were struggling with uh, being married against their wishes where young people might say things like um, that young person themselves said, I was not forced into this marriage because I did not openly oppose my parents' decision. Um, 
because and they didn't do this because they knew they didn't they couldn't openly oppose the parents decision it just wasn't possible for whatever pressures social personal familial other pressures and so in their in their own minds the young people concluded the marriage was arranged and not forced because they didn't sort of make a speech about not wanting to be married to their spouse and finally another problematic assumption that we encountered um, across sort of for all sorts of issues across the board not related specifically to forced marriage is that truly somebody else at the university will hear about an issue if there is one so for instance a security um, staff member said that students would go first to police if they had something to report um, police officers working at universities told us that students probably would go first to lecturers or personal tutors and personal tutor told us that even if you're a personal tutor that doesn't mean your 2T will tell you sensitive information depends on what kind of relationship you have so this is a, a danger that we are thinking somebody else will take responsibility for solving the problem and finally um, problematic assumptions about interventions. Um, some uh, interviews said that they didn't really know much, they hadn't had any issues of forced marriage, violence against women, but if they, if a student came to them with these problems, they would sort of figure out what to do, you know, they would talk to the parents. Um, and everything I have heard about forced marriage is that talking to the parents is about the worst. Um, that you could do, and in particular for an outsider, and maybe particular for a white person to talk to a parents in a minoritized community. So this idea of sort of sitting down together, everybody around the table, and talking things through, this is sort of a particular idea of how to solve social and interpersonal human problems. It's heavily, I think it's heavily influenced by sort of counseling discourses and psychology discourses. It's certainly huge in the United States. So this idea, you know, we have to sit down, look each other in the eye and spill it all out. And so then we know what goes on in our, in our psychic worlds and that of the other person. And then we can sort things out. And there are probably situations where this approach works, but, um, I think this is really ill-advised to try this in cases of forced marriage. Um, but it's not just an issue with forced marriage. I, mean, I have a case in the, uh, at the University of Maine of a student who was raped and asked the dean of students to not tell her parents that she was raped. But he did, because the parents were shouting at him at midnight or whatever they were doing, and so he just told them. Um, so this also has to do with how to draw boundaries and how to protect confidentiality, but in general the, there's a problematic assumption that it's a good idea to talk to parents about these issues because it assumes that the parents will take a course of action then that is beneficial to the student and that cannot be assumed. You don't know this about the parents. And you also don't know that it's not, it's not unique to forced marriage. You do not know this about white whatever middle-class parents, how they will respond to their daughter if they find out that she has been raped. Especially if, she's, if the daughter says, don't tell my parents. 
if she had a good relationship with her parents, it might not be an issue. She might have told them herself. But if this is a clear warning to that there's something not really good in the relationship between parents and children. Okay. Um, and then um, these last points also have to do with what I think are, could be problematic um, ways in which universities are moving to address these complex issues. One has to do with instituting one-stop complaint procedures so that there's one area in the university where you can go and complain about whatever you don't like in the university. Um, and I think that um, sometimes this is done in order to streamline things, to streamline services, maybe to save money and so forth. But um, we need to consider what the impacts of those arrangements are for the reporting of very sensitive issues. So for instance, if you had a, a physical area in a university where there's a sort of a desk, a complaints desk of sort, and then a waiting area, and you could go there and say the, the toilets on the second floor are not working again, and that's fine, um, or you have other complaints that you might be comfortable being overheard by the public. But that's not an ideal environment to disclose sensitive violations. And similarly, um, we found no uh, policies on university websites, on the public pages of university websites, specifically addressing violence against women or gender-based violence. A little bit of policy here and there, either about domestic violence or rape and sexual assault, um, very rarely about forced marriage. But everybody has a policy that is either called an anti-bullying policy or an anti-harassment policy, every university. And not even anti-sexual harassment, but just anti-harassment. And I think probably the thinking behind this is for universities thinking, well, we have all these problems here and they're all really complicated and they're going to cost time and money and wouldn't it be great if we could address them with this one fell swoop policy and we just call it antisocial behavior or bullying or harassment and then you have sort of a um, preamble that says the university is against all these bad behaviors and then there comes a list, maybe, what is included in there and it might actually list domestic violence and sexual assault but basically, the gist of the policy is sort of some vague bad behavior is not tolerated. And what is problematic about that is has to do with the implementation of policy. Um, and what, usually, if there is a policy like this on the books, there is a staff member at the university who is responsible for implementing the policy. And this staff member may or may not have specialist expertise on violence against women, domestic violence, sexual assault, forced marriage, and may or may not be able to implement the policy in a case of forced marriage or violence against women. There was one, um, just while we were doing this research, we sort of incidental, we heard of one case of a um, prestigious university in the UK where uh, sexual assault had occurred in the University had one of those generic anti-bullying policies on the books, and the individual responsible for pursuing the sexual assault under the university policy said, 
I don't really know anything about sexual assault. I don't really know how to go about this. So this is one practical disadvantage, a serious disadvantage of having these generic policies that you don't need to push for sort of specialist training or really sort of push for thinking through what all these issues are that might come under the policies and what the social and cultural and political implications are and what the needs are of um, people who are being violated and they vary um, and they do need some specialist expertise and at the very least some sort of knowledge of how to refer to specialist resources in the community. So lastly what um, so I think that this sort of comprehensive response um, was not there at least not where we looked and I think that um, a comprehensive university response needs to include or should include and maybe be built on or start with the university as an institution, meaning the lead and that includes the leadership of the university to take core responsibility for addressing violence against women and forced marriage and not consider this as something else that they also have to do and maybe they get to it once they dealt with all sorts of other things that seem to be more important. So there needs to be some um, taking responsibility as an institution. I think uh, universities, need, universities need to have specialist institutional policies combined with adequate staff training on how to implement the policy and how to support victims when they come forward and what to do with perpetrators. And then once that is in place, there needs to be an awareness campaigns on sort of making a stand on what the university expects in terms of behavior and what the resources are on campus or in the community. Um, there may also be room for universities to take action against contexts that may be conducive to abuse. Um, an example for this from the United States is that um, uh, rape or sexual assault in the, in the context of party parties on campuses, um, sometimes in fraternity environments, but not always in fraternity environments and where the whole, the cultural and social dynamics are such that um, these parties create context for some people, mostly young men, to um, prey on young women. Um, so probably not everybody who goes to the party, but the party itself sort of creates a context at which for predators it makes it easier to play on women, um, spike their drinks with drugs or do or just try to get them drunk and sort of prepare um, for sexual assault. And some of the actions or some of the intervention, current intervention programs pursued at many universities in the United States target um, these kinds of dynamics and try to teach the other students present at the party on how to sort of read the signs and see on the warning signs of impending sexual assault and then interfere, distract the perpetrator or protect the victim, so forth, so-called bystander programs. Um, finally, I think um, universities could be could do much more in terms of multi-agency working and collaborate with local specialists, NGOs, and with uh, local police. Uh, and ideally, um, 
have periodic evaluations of the impact of such measures if they were ever taken. Um, that's what I have to say for the moment about this particular piece of research. Um, I'm happy to discuss this more and, and sort of issues that uh, pertain to it. And so I invite your questions and comments. Thank you. Okay, thank you.